0: Welcome to the Love Out Loud podcast, and if you're new to our tribe, on behalf of the entire global family, just so you know, we love you. You're a part of a collective of millions now in over 40 countries around the world devoted to revolutionizing our views on love, global leadership, challenging systems of fear, and creating a new earth together. Love Out Loud takes you on a journey of learning how to love yourself and realizing your unlimited potential so that together we can create a unified and compassionate world. Our membership is the heart of our ever-growing global family and we would love to see you win that. Join us for free now by clicking the link below. Alex, thank you so much for being on the Love Out Loud podcast. Um, to all the Love Out Louders out there listening to this podcast, Alex is a total... About us when it comes to civil liberty, human rights, the evolution of our economy. And I'm super grateful for him jumping on with us uh, this afternoon and sharing his incredible wisdom. Alex, welcome.
1: Thank you for the generous welcome. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah. So in Love Out Loud, we're we're very much about scoping out a new paradigm of possibility for humanity. You know, our bigger vision is to really truly be able to build systems and influence systematic change which allows for more people to live in in a love-based way and transcend oppression, fear, um, you know, powerlessness. I, I would just love to hear... Your thoughts. By the way, we we go deep quick, so I hope that's okay. Um, yeah. On on whether or not you you truly believe that that's that's possible for humanity, for us to build an earth that is is free of those uh, violations of human rights.
1: Um, I'm very optimistic. I think the world can be dramatically improved. However, I think it would be You know, based on what I've seen, uh, naive to think that that human rights violations can can end completely um, or that wars and conflict and greed and jealousy can end. I think what's more interesting is to consider a future that harnesses these bad traits within us and somehow channels them into uh, basically nullifying them like a lot of the things I'm looking at right now relate to the idea of systems that take greed and jealousy and transform them into, uh, basically, uh, in bettering others and improving the lives of other people and in improving freedom for people. And I don't, I don't know how many uh, te- technologies or, or social systems exist like this, but there 's certainly one that i 'd like to to talk about that sort of does that, and that, that gives me um, a lot of hope because i, I don 't think that we can rely on altruism alone to improve uh, our society or race i think that 's proven that 's proven to be unfortunately not sufficient. There have to be incentives for people to want to improve and I think those incentives have to have to align with self-interest from, from what I've seen at least. Um, So, yeah, I guess we can start with that.
0: Mm, It's such a, such a powerful point of of discussion. I'd love to hear your thoughts based on the humanity that you've been exposed to and and doing this work and formulating these views. Um, What your understanding is of the essence of, of human nature.
1: Well, My views are colored by the work I've done with the human rights foundation and the Oslo freedom forum in meeting dissidents and investigative journalists and democracy leaders from around the world who are living in authoritarian countries. Um, so Mm. look, I think generally speaking over the last few thousand years, many humans have decided to make a trade off where they've basically, uh, managed to create a system where, you know, the idea of one or a small group of people in charge, which is traditionally how human societies operated, right? Um, Hierarchical Mm -hmm. systems with like a dictator or a tyrant or a king or whatever emperor, Um, that system, despite its sort of dominance and sort of ease, I suppose, um, has been traded off for a more decentralized system, in many countries where there's like a balance of power and there's executive branch, a legislative branch, judicial branch. And that trade-off has led to the em- empowerment of people and actually ha- has, has been in the self-interest of those people. So like in a country that has made a transition from a dictatorship to a democracy over time, we've seen, You know, super strong evidence that that has benefited people in terms of their incomes, their lifespan, their quality of life, their literacy rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So as you watched, especially in Europe, um, all of these military dictatorships and kingdoms turn into electoral democracies, and there's examples of this in every part of the world, Latin America, Africa, Middle East, um, Asia, uh, former Soviet Union. Uh, and it's not, and it's not a rule. It's sort of just a, it, it's, but it's generally true. It generally holds that as countries decentralize their political power, they, they become more prosperous. So I think that's kind of an interesting uh, concept and idea to dwell on. And we we are seeing the decentralization of political power, uh, as, as maybe one of a, a set of three things that are happening where we've also in the last several hundred years seen the decentralization of information through the printing press and um, all, all kinds of other technologies and obviously most recently the open internet. Mm. So that in the same way that, again, like we've made this trade-off very unconsciously. It's not like when somebody pressed a button. that so over time, there has been a trade-off in exchanging the power that a small group of people once held over all the information whether it was uh, you know, in the Western world, Christian authorities or uh, religious authorities in, in the Muslim world, et cetera, that held the keys to the library and, uh, and, and controlled information. That's been exchanged for a system where anyone can immediately, with like a click of a button, understand everything. And everybody has the Library of Alexandria in their pocket. So that's been like enormously democratizing. And then the third set, I would say, is with money and with Bitcoin. And that's where we're going to you know get to this idea of <clears throat> where small groups of people again held all the power you know not in a political or an information sense but in an economic sense and now we're shifting to this world where like nobody in particular controls the bitcoin system and we can all access it permissionlessly no one can stop us and no one person or group can change the rules mm. so uh i'm it, what's interesting to me is that like in each case It's been a social exchange of, you know, in some cases, maybe you would say stability um, and certainty, you know, with more of an autocratic system towards something more risky and radical, but that has given enormous fruits to, to humanity. We've seen that borne out with democracy and the internet. We haven't seen it yet with Bitcoin, but I believe we're just at the beginning of that. And again, it's this interesting thing where like, People realize that this transition, this decentralization process, is good for them. So they get skin in the game and they get interested. And it's not altruistic. Yeah. Um. It, you know, it's 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 not altruistic to want to want your country to to have a democracy. It, it will actually most most likely make everybody's life better, uh, including yours. It's not altruistic to want open information. Um. It, it's it's it, it may be, but it's also Going to make everybody you know able to do more and i think with bitcoin we'll see the same like it's not an altruistic thing i mean people are going to want to flock to bitcoin for self-interest because they think it's going to make them money but in the end it's like strengthening the system that makes things more free and fair for everyone so so this is sort of something i've been thinking a lot about
0: yeah i mean it's it's so um I, i love what you're sharing and you know and A distinction that I find so interesting is that altruism has to sort of be um, separated from this idea of self-interest, you know, when when what you're actually sharing is this natural process of evolution that's happened across, um, you know, pretty much now all of our major systems to decentralize has actually improved the lives of the individual. Is it not sort of pointing to, in your opinion, the fact that we really are um better more fulfilled when we uh, are able to transcend just the idea of self and work with each other it actually creates more Mm -hmm. prosperity for all
1: yeah i'm not sure i I think that that narrative has been co-opted actually by dictators if you actually look at china and you look at the chinese communist party you know there's this strong message that we need to work together you know Mm. um and that we need to be one as a nation and then we need to harmonize. And I think yeah. these narratives are really dangerous because what, you know, it's a harmonization is just a code word for putting Muslims in giant concentration camps. I mean, there's not, it, it's very straightforward there. Um, so I would be wary of any sort of like grand narratives or themes that call for everybody to come together and work. I mean, these humanitarian, these sort of uh, communist humanitarian ideologies have traditionally ended very poorly for people. I guess what I'm getting at is that um, I think altruism and self-interest are are different, Um, but uh, self-interest, like within certain, I think the the trick is designing a system where self-interest creates altruism, where, 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 where like you are forced to, because you want the best for yourself and your family, very narrowly, participate in a system which makes everybody better and I, from my experience dealing with all these brutal political situations around the world, I just, you know, that's the only way I could, I could have faith in a better future is if we harness our worst parts inside of us, Mm -hmm. we can't expect them to improve. We're always going to live in a world again, that I think has a lot of jealousy and greed and, and conflict. But if we can design systems where self-interest Dictates peace and prosperity, then we win. I mean, that's, it's at the, that's at the end of the day what global trade is. You know, there's a. If you think about the reasons why France and Germany aren't going to fight each other tomorrow, whereas over the span of a hundred years, thirty years of war, World War One, World War II, those two nations exterminated, you know, a third of each other's male population three times in the span of a hundred years, millions and millions dead. That's not going to happen anymore or at least the possibility of that happening is like super minuscule because uh, they are trading with each other and they are each benefiting from each other. However, it's not because of altruism. Yeah. Uh, it, France and Germany aren't peaceful because they all of a sudden like each other better now. No, they're peaceful because they're locked in this uh, system whereby they are reliant on each other. And, and this system is built on their self-interest and their selfishness and their greed and their individual, both state and, and nation, like citizen and sort of nation, uh, self-interest. Like, it is better for France to trade with Germany. It results in more prosperity for the people and for the country than to fight. Um, so, again, that, that's like a clear example, I guess, to give you one of, of how I think this can work and actually benefit humanity.
0: Yeah, I mean, I it, I, I love this, you know, being being able to really leverage our worst points and actually have them equal um, prosperity for all. That is, of course, uh, an avenue that is um, something that I believe deserves everyone's backing, and I can't wait to sort of dive into more of your passion for um, Bitcoin and decentralized Yeah, but I mean, system. it doesn't always work
1: like that. Like, it, it again, it, it, it takes a special set of people to – architect Life. that design. I mean, you, you can have, you can have many other designs and we we can see that on the world today. China and North Korea is a good example. Mm-hmm. these countries also aren't fighting each other, but it's not because they have this, you know, brilliantly designed system whereby the self-interest of each country is, you know, dictating that on the contrary, it's a small group of people have managed to hold on to with violence, each country. And they just narrowly have decided to not fight each other. But that, as we know, is fickle. That could change any day now. Mm-hmm. Whereas the long-term self-interest based cooperation between nations is not fickle. It's very hard to change. Like it's, it, it's very, it, it takes years to erode. I mean, yes, a, a far left or a far right leaders could come into power in France and Germany and they could drive each other to war, but like, that would take years and years and years to do. It would take sixty seconds, or You know, several hours for the North Korean leader to say something that would piss off the Chinese leader, and all, all of a sudden, like you know, goodbye, your subsidy, or you know, or worse, right? So, mm-hmm. what, what's additionally interesting about these systems, uh, these social networks that that bind us together out of self-interest, is that they're 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 more anti-fragile and stronger than ones that are based on autocracy and centralization so you know we we also should recognize that 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 those centralized systems can and do work and unfortunately they are still about as popular as the decentralized ones you know out of today's seven and a half billion people more than half live under an authoritarian model
0: yeah uh, now you, you, could,
1: you could look at it half glass full and say oh wow almost half live under a free, you know more you know open one and then that's kind of how I look at it. But still, I mean, it would be naive to like say that that the that the centralized model based on violence instead of on cooperation is is you know um, you know is for the past. I mean, it's clearly still part of the present, and it threatens. I mean, the Chinese model, the Chinese Communist Party wants to rule the world, right? And while um, that may be more in the minds of perhaps Australians than than most people, maybe in the rest of the Western societies. um, it, it, it's it's probably not going to happen for different reasons, but it's still something we should think about. Um, you know, there there is this sort of a existential civilizational threat here. Of are we as a species, as a society, going to be ruled by dictators or by ourselves in the future? I mean, that, that's still an open question, I would say.
0: Mm. Can I ask, Alex, like through, through all of your um, ventures, adventures, you know, frontline um, tackling of, of these problems, how has it come to formulate your own personal philosophy about how you live your life, how you show up in the world? Have you needed to incentivize these sort of darker parts of your personality to show up in, in leadership <laughs> yeah. in a more altruistic way?
1: Yeah, well, I do think it is important to distinguish what happens in a family or a small organization from what may happen in a neighborhood or a town, from what may happen in a country, from what may happen for the hum- you know all of humanity. Hmm. Um, I think there is something, some clever witticism that uh, that people in Silicon Valley say, where it's something like. I'm not saying that I prescribe to this exactly, but you know, you can think of it this way: you want to be like a communist with your family and friends, but a libertarian with everybody else. Like, I mean, it's it's uh, it's 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 true in as much as you may have different personal philosophies, dealing in generosities and, and um, willingness to forgive and, and things like that, with, with a smaller group of people than than with strangers. I mean, I think this is just yeah straight up philosophy, like um, you're going to be more sympathetic and empathetic with people you know than, than, than you don't. And a lot of what goes on at the Human Rights Foundation in my day job is trying to figure out how to make people sympathetic to something that's happening halfway around the world, to which they have no good relation for, that they have no mm-hmm. bloodline, they have no reason to be, you know, to care for what's happening in Nigeria right now, if you live in California. Um, so how do we get them to care? And that's kind of yeah. what we, that's sort of the art of what we do at HRF. But in general, I think that, yeah, people, people, you'll observe this all the time. You, you see people who are amazing, who, or at least if you read their autobiographies, right. Uh, or you read their biographies, uh, I guess, more accurately, <laughs> you, you want to definitely see like an independent
0: That's a you know? distinction. Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> distinction. Yeah. Um, but like, they might be a tyrant in the office, but be like great at home or whatever, you know, and their product may change the world, right? Or it might be the opposite. They might be an amazing, amazing at home, but like not a particularly good at business or something like that. So, Mm. uh, you know, you'll see people differ. Um, And I think over time I have realized that to the greatest extent possible, it is, uh, I'm someone who who traditionally is sort of conflict avoiding. and that's In your nature. All, yeah, it's never it's not a good attribute actually. Um <laughs> because it allows things to like simmer and uh
0: how do you then write the strategy for the Human Rights Foundation? I'm, f- I'm fascinated to know. No, I, so I'm
1: differentiating <laughs> between like my my interpersonal relationships from the I'm trying to tell you is that it's super different like
0: Yeah. You could no, read that, that's an that's author I mean you
1: could read somebody who what's what's a good example? i mean people are very different they're like they're like uh, what's it's like jekyll and hyde like you might read someone and they're describing a way of living and then they don't they live a different way so um for me at HRF we're very yeah we're seeking conflict we're like trying to expose (laughs) and shame dictators right but like in my interpersonal relationships i started at a place where i was like you know trying to avoid that um And do you feel that's
0: actually equipped you in a way to to be able to sort of understand what gets in the way of people wanting to lean into conflict and actually approach um, that strategy with with more of a depth of understanding? Do you draw on that that personal shortcoming? I think
1: it's important if you're trying to work with someone or if you need to spend time with them to Mm -hmm. try and figure out if they are one or the other. um, That'll help you unlock a better way of dealing with them and that's something in negotiations just, yeah. Or just if you, I mean, it could be someone that you've hired to do some work on your house, or it could be your boss. It's Mm. like, or it could be, you know, someone that you are advising or uh, someone that you gave birth to or whatever. I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying, it's probably a good idea to figure out whether or not they are, they avoid conflict because that'll really help you understand how to, how to deal with them.
0: Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And I
1: didn't have a good, understanding of how important that was for, for many years. And I think that's unfortunate. So I think that's certainly improved my, um, uh, ability to be, I think more, more effective, um, generally speaking. But yeah, I think also it is, you know, I think it's easy to be, um, It's also easy to be kind of like straight like straightforward and and petty sometimes, Um, you know, if we're in a rush or whatever, or we're like really focused on something Hmm. and that's uh, not an easy thing to undo obviously is it, it, well it maybe obvious to you or whatever but
0: for sure and was, how much It's not obvious out? to me
1: so <laughs> so that that's been also a big thing is like be super careful about the way you say things
0: yeah you so, know one <laughs> thing I'm so passionate about is is like people recognizing that the the person you are being and embodying whether that's personal or professional there's there's always going to be a flow effect you know I had um a position as a commissioner with the uh in Australia advising the PM on uh, the mental health portfolio. And what I learned during that time was these leaders who um, in their own lives were stressed and not regulated and not in any state to be making, you know, conscious decisions, especially to the degree that they were and the, the amount of lives that those decisions were impacting. It made me so passionate to think deeper about how the way that we're showing up personally and our own personality has to have a flow-on effect, irrespective of how professionally skilled we are, to the way that we're influencing change in a position of leadership.
1: Mm-hmm. And sure. have,
0: have have you have you seen this? Like how someone's—I'm I'm sure you have—in some of the conflicts that you've been on the front line, sort of dealing with how someone's personality is essentially innately. Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I'm trying to describe general aspirational things that I just based on what I've seen recommend for people. So number one, try to understand if the people you're working with are are conflict seeking or conflict avoiding. Mm -hmm. And number two. Just. Pause and consider how you're what you're going to say and how you're going to say it Um, being brash doesn't usually help, but generally, but like going back to the work I do. Um, look, activists are kind of like entrepreneurs. They're very stubborn. I mean, they're very hard headed. Um, and that, that is, that is how they are able to change the world. Um, many of them balance that with an incredible humanity. A lot of them don't though. So, I mean, I've met hundreds, uh, I've spent like, you know, let's say, hours with hundreds of different human rights activists from 50, 60, 70, 80, I don't know, maybe a hundred countries, different, different backgrounds, different kinds of people. Um, they're not all like people that you'd, you'd enjoy spending time with. I mean, a lot of them are, uh, you know, very narrowly focused on what matters to them and probably for good reason. Like a lot of these people have had their families tortured or whatever. Um, but, you know, a lot of them are not, a lot of them have strange attributes. But uh, I would say that's something to recognize. It's, it's probably similar with CEOs and founders of companies. Yeah, I mean, some of them are going to be very humane and you'll see great blog posts about how wonderful they are, but that's <laughs> not that, that's not possible to make in every case. And in fact, the trait that I would that I would imagine binds most of them is some sort of stubbornness or frustration with how, the way the world is, and a drive and a willingness to change it.
0: Yeah, do you feel like it, it's something that um, is an important message for people to understand the how often leaders aren't experiencing empathy in in their positions? You know, like they're they're pedestaled and they're expected to be the embodiment. Of what it is they they're speaking twenty four seven and how actually that pressure can really be damaging to a leader
1: yeah, I mean you're never going to please everybody um, I wasn't really talking about political leaders, actually, I think that's a very different breed of people <laughs> um, but I was talking more like about human rights activists and
0: yeah and I, sort I meant leaders ta- in and leaders sort of like
1: CEOs. Um, I
0: I think leaders in general um, experience that often, you know, an absence of empathy, which then drives them to maybe be even more calcified.
1: Possibly. I do think that political and diplomatic leaders are much more self-serving. I mean, they they often don't have a mission beyond um, the political agenda. (laughs) Okay, so if you're a tech CEO, your mission is not to be in power it might be to make a lot of money, but more, more likely it's like, cause you figured something out and you really want to pursue that. Right. Yeah. Um, like Elon Musk is not, you know, he's a good example. Uh, like these, these things he's done to help change the world. They're like obviously things that he's, it's not like he wants to be president. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. he wants to j- pursue these things, which, which are wild. And, and at the, at the, frontier of our imaginations. Same thing with human rights activists. I mean, most of them didn't grow up. I mean, <laughs> I mean any, you know, the, the, if you like went to school for human rights, chances are you're not gonna be a very good human rights activist. Like,
0: like
1: human rights <laughs> Isn't that activists. like anything, Alex? <laughs> no, I think it's actually, if you went to school to be a good chemist, you'd probably be a pretty good chemist. This is very mm. different. If you actually interview people who, be, who are the most famous dissidents, they didn't intend to be so. They went to school for something else and it happened to them, Mm. right? So their father was kidnapped or their sister or brother or mother or whatever. Something happened and or their, you know, a, a dictatorship or an extremist organization came and invaded their town or their region or their country and they decided to fight back or whatever. But, you know, most of these people I've interviewed or have gotten to know, they started out, you know, as a rock, you know. In a rock band, or as a geologist, or or something like that, and they end up being a revolutionary leader. Um, so, I would say that a, a lot of what I've seen in human rights activism is sort of um, uh, happenstance. So, mm. the, the, I don't know what kind of lessons you want to draw from that, but uh, there's not decades of intentionality behind their decision. Whereas, yeah, it was, it was that responsive. Yeah. And again, I, exactly. It's responsive. So I think I would want to differentiate the qualities of leaders in general terms, activists and technologists are responsive. Whereas I think, you know, let's call them politicians. And then in dictatorships and authoritarian States, you know, thugs, they're more power seeking. I don't yeah. think they're, I mean, if you want to believe that the Chinese communist party is doing what they're doing for the good of the world, you can believe that I don't, um, so, you know, I, I think it's important to actually distinguish different kinds of leaders.
0: Mm, yeah. Because
1: they have different motivations.
0: Definitely. Generally, and underneath, generally. De, under, underneath uh, all those leaders is, is a human being with their own complexities as well, which is, um, I think, a beautiful segue into talking because I know you want to talk about uh, Bitcoin and we're so interested to hear as well. Um how leaders sometimes need that uh, that incentive to be able to align their personal motives to uh, a system that serves all so I want to know what led you into your, your passion for Bitcoin was it your work through the, the human rights foundation what did you see what experiences were kind of pivotal in helping you recognize that we needed to rethink our economic structures and systems
1: Sure. Well, I think my interest in Bitcoin was built on my career in, you know, fighting authoritarianism and supporting dissidents and activists around the world. I came into it that way. I didn't come into it from finance or from trading or from tech. Um, And maybe that's just why I see it differently. But to me, it's extremely powerful and breathtaking and, um, it is something that most people just have not grasped yet, but for me, given what I've seen in terms of the problems around the world, a money that can be sent without having to ask permission from anybody and that can't be censored and that isn't controlled by like rich people or billionaires or governments is tremendously powerful and very, uh, progressive and, It started out as nothing. It started out as a concept paper. It started out as one person running the software on their computer. And now it's this like unstoppable global force. It's really amazing, especially when you consider that we don't even know who created it. Um, Mm. He, she, they, I mean, we just have no idea. And that's the only way really it could be because if someone created it, very early on, they would have been arrested, killed, something like that. Something would have happened to them. And then at that, in, in the early days, when you could have stopped Bitcoin, it would have been stopped. So the anonymity, or rather, I guess, the pseudonymity of the founder or founders, super, super important. It was the only way it was going to work. Um, but now we have this, again, we have this money, we have this network, we have this way of coordinating with each other that does not rely on any government or any corporation or our oligarchy, like just this morning I made a donation of Bitcoin uh, to a feminist organization in Nigeria that's organizing protests against police brutality. And I I donated to their Bitcoin account from my phone, you know, in a matter of minutes and no one's going to censor that transaction. It's not possible. And then, You know, they own it. You know, they are the owners of that now. They have the private key to that. And that teleportation of value is incredible. So, to me, that's just a very powerful thing that is going to be a very important tool for human rights activists, but probably much, much deeper and more transformative than that
0: incredible so incredible and for those for those who are listening that that aren't you know overly familiar with blockchain technology how what are the biggest differentiating factors as we move from a centralized system into a decentralized system
1: well I know it seems weird to focus on this but I, I really would cons- ask your <laughs> listeners to consider that it, it, it's not exactly about block blockchain technology is a marketing term. If you, if you read the Bitcoin white paper, the word blockchain is not in it. Um, Satoshi refers to something called a time chain, but blockchain was something that was invented later and has been co-opted into a term that seeks to replicate some of what is Bitcoin, but make it palatable for the masses and controllable. So blockchain technology is a corporate term, a government term mm. It's non-revolutionary and, you know, non-problematic. Let's put it that way. Um, Bitcoin is the revolution. (laughs) To them. Well, yeah, it's it's (laughs) controllable. I mean, it's a system that's designed and can be controlled. It's just like another database. It's it's, completely anodyne. I mean, there's not a whole lot uh, to look at in the area of, quote-unquote, blockchain technology. In fact, you can ignore it completely and be much better off. Um, You can argue... um, Uh, you know, again, that Bitcoin is the thing that I would urge your listeners to think about and learn about. Um, Because again, this is, to me, this is not a technology innovation. This is not a, a database innovation. This isn't money. This is about democratizing the creation and distribution of money. I mean, this is, again, I think as big as the creation and distribution of information and democratizing that
0: <laughs> so using for technologies
1: like the internet, like the internet, you know?
0: 100%. For that understanding, what, what are the, the differences then between um, sure, other, so, yeah, other cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, so let's see. What's the best way of putting this? Bitcoin is a global money network that is not controlled by governments and corporations, at all. There are other cryptocurrencies which which will gain a lot of use and be very popular, but those cryptocurrencies are controlled in some way by governments or corporations. I'll give two examples. One would be a stable coin, and one would be a what's called a CBDC, or Central Bank Digital Currency. Um, so again, you have Bitcoin, which is this open source software project that is Open to anybody. You don't need to prove an ID or disclose any information to set up a Bitcoin account, and nobody can stop you from sending value to somebody else. And it's scarce. There's just not that much Bitcoin, so therefore, it's very valuable, and it, it be, it'll become increasingly valuable as more and more people learn about it. Mm. And it's not like the rules of the system are not controlled by a small group of people. It's like, do
0: you feel like that will ever shift? I so that there would be more Bitcoin issued?
1: No. It, th- there will not. Um, if that happens, then that won't be Bitcoin. That'll be something else. Yeah. Bitcoin is scarcity. I mean, at a fundamental level. Yeah. Bitcoin is 21 million. That will all, that, you know, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And that is Bitcoin. If somehow that's changed, then it won't be Bitcoin. It'll be something else. So you have Bitcoin, I would say. Three things to pay attention to in the space of digital, of you know, digital money in the future: you have Bitcoin, you have stable coins, which are created by companies um, uh, and, and software entrepreneurs, and which may be less controllable than than like Venmo or PayPal, but ultimately are are stable. I mean, their value is somehow tied to a fiat currency, so at the end of the day, it's still under the auspices of a government. Do you see what I'm saying? Like like a, a stable coin is only as good as the thing it's pegged to.
0: 100%, yeah.
1: So you can make a good argument that we should be looking at stable coins because they allow us to perhaps trade dollars or Australian dollars in a way that's like less controlled by the government. But at the end of the day, they're still Australian dollars. They're still replicas of the dollar. So um, the Bitcoin so
0: really is its own currency? In yeah, market? Bitcoin has nothing to
1: do with the dollar. I mean, it's yeah. value proposition is not violence and guns it's not it's completely different yeah um so you have bitcoin you have stable coins and then central bank digital currencies are very interesting i mean basically we've had digital money meaning fiat money for a long time obviously i mean we've had credit cards and these are all um ledger based systems right which um are relationships between you and a company. And then that company has a relationship with a big bank. And then that bank has a relationship with a central bank. This is sort of modern finance, right? So um, a government will issue liabilities in two forms. Reserves, which it gives to central banks, rather, sorry, reserves, which it gives to commercial banks, and then cash, actual notes. These are liabilities of, of the central bank. And these are distributed to individuals out in the system, out in the wild, and they're um they're good privacy tools obviously they're bearer instruments cash is cool we like cash in the human rights space or at least human rights activists should like cash however um you know so so you basically and this is built off the this is a I'm I'm rehashing an explanation of a of a monetary historian named Brett Scott who's fabulous and your listeners should all check out his videos but he basically makes the case that there's just, you know, only a couple kinds of money there's state money or call it fiat money. And again, that's either reserves, which are given to banks uh, or cash given to citizens. Then there's like commercial money. So these banks based on how many reserves they have can create, um, you know, different size ledgers for their customers. Right? So this is, this is sort of commercial money. This is like a separate kind of money. Um, And then you have like what he calls, I think, intermediaries. So these are like these tech companies like Stripe or PayPal or whatever. And they have their own ledger and they have their own money and it's like attached to a bank. So the thing to understand is that like the tech company money and the, you know, payment processor money, Visa, PayPal, Venmo, that's all in the end of the day, all those people have bank accounts and they're all connected in some way to that central government. So all of that stuff is what we call KYC, know your customered, know your customer like it's it's basically in order to use Visa or PayPal or have a bank account, you have to provide all of your information, which increasingly is like a scan of your face and God knows what. So in order to use commercial money or, you know, or, you know, digital. You know, reserve money from the from the central bank. You have to you have to prove your identity. It's, it, these are not privacy tools. Okay, um, cash is a privacy tool, but there's a war on cash. Cash is disappearing. I mean, it's as everybody's probably aware. In twenty years, nobody's really going to use cash. Is um, there
0: less cash it's being printed at the moment, Alex?
1: No. Um, actually there's, well, it depends obviously in certain countries. Yes. Uh, I would, I think in China, yes, but in America, I think the amount of cash year on year remains, uh, there's a slight growth, but in terms of percentage of transactions in a society, Mm -hmm. it goes down. So in America today, as of last year, 26% of daily American transactions are cash, 26%. That obviously used to be way higher, like 30 years ago, if you went out and bought a coffee, you weren't going to pay with a check and, you know, credit cards weren't that popular or 40 years ago, whatever it was. Right. There was a time when like cash was close to 100% of all daily transactions. And that meant privacy for everybody. There were no big brother systems, you know, vacuuming up all this transaction data because it didn't exist. Okay. So now that 74% of Americans daily transactions are digital and when I mean digital, I mean credit card or your phone or your swipe or your chip or whatever. That's just like a huge surveillance machine, right? And both commercial and state, like both big brother and surveillance capitalism. So this is happening in different proportions in different countries. I'm not sure what the exact proportions are in Australia, but it's a, it's, a, it's a general trend, right? Um, towards a cashless society. And... What Brett Scott and others are pointing out is that as this goes on, there's this like war on cash where governments don't like cash very much because it's, it's hard for them to control and, and, and spy on people with it's, it's, it's Mm -hmm. a privacy tool. So they'd rather have a digital equivalent. So that's where, again, these central bank digital currencies come in. That was a long-winded explanation, but again, I'm trying to oh, define it. I appreciate
0: it, I appreciate it.
1: <laughs> if you will, three cryptocurrencies that your viewers should be aware of, one mm. being Bitcoin, two being stable coins, um, and, and, and three being these central bank digital currencies. So the idea is mm. that instead of giving you cash as a piece of paper, they'll give you cash in an app and it'll be a direct liability of the central government. Now, mm. this is good for them, for central governments, because A... It it, remo- it it erodes power from the from the private sector. Uh, it it, it kind of gives them more power, and yep. number two, um, it allows them to have like direct surveillance of where all the all the sort of daily money's going. So it it takes this part of the economy that they don't have very much insight into daily small transactions, and and it it'll, it makes that a clear window.
0: And so is that. Like,
1: so there's both a surveillance and, like, a power struggle reason why, 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 why federal governments will want these things called CBDCs. And that's why they're going to try to replace cash with them. It may not work, but it's certainly something they're trying. The Chinese government just did its first ever big, like, uh, rollout of this this week, actually. So in Shenzhen, they dropped about 50,000 um, to 50,000 people there, about 30 U.S. dollars worth each of this. It's called DCEP. China's central bank digital currency is called DCEP. Uh, and they gave it to 50,000 individuals and 3,000 merchants. So they're like trying to jumpstart it. And as you saw with China with like things like WeChat, they're able mm. to jumpstart stuff pretty fast. Like it only takes a couple of years for stuff in China to go from like no users to like 600 million users. So mm.
0: um,
1: so look, we're, we're dealing with a future where we're gonna have these like potentially digital versions of state money that are spy tools. And, you know, again, we may have private versions of money that, that may be less controlled by those governments, but at the end of the day are still pegged to the value. Right? So Bitcoin is different in those, in two very important ways. Number one, again, it's not controlled by any governments and there's ways to use Bitcoin fairly, in a fairly private manner. But number two, it's value is not connected to any decision makers of a bureaucracy at a central bank. It's not something that people can adjust for inflation or whatever there's There's no way to um, for aid government to to change the value of Bitcoin. So that's why it's super interesting. And to go back to the beginning of our conversation, it's why is this like machine that sort of turns greed into freedom. Because because no one government can control its price, um, it'll act, I, I predict kind of like gold did, or it sort of remains. As this reserve asset that, that is somewhat scarce, and in Bitcoin's case, fine, completely scarce, um, gold, as you know, more gold comes into uh, circulation every year, a small amount, about 2%, but it's like, it's, it's always growing, the amount of gold, whereas Bitcoin is growing only a small amount now, and that rate of growth decreases to zero in the year 2139. So as of that year, there'll be no more Bitcoin. So over the next hundred years, you'll see like an, a, a decreasingly s- small amount of new Bitcoin come into the system and it's asymptotic. Mm. So it's like after about 10 years from now, it'll be almost barely anything. But yeah, well, given how powerful Bitcoin is and how useful it is and how censorship resistant and seizure resistant it is, uh, people like me believe that it'll be worth a huge amount in the future in terms of these state monies, which are the total opposite. State monies are infinitely printable. And indeed, you're seeing this new philosophy come to power and prominence in America called modern monetary theory, um, which basically says the government doesn't have uh, shouldn't shouldn't have a budget limit. It should basically spend as much as it needs. And, you know, only inflation will kind of like be the limit of of how much they can spend. So, you know, look, that may be a good thing. I don't I'm not I'm not here to say whether MMT is good or bad, but there are some moral arguments, I think, why it may actually be interesting. But regardless, it's very good for Bitcoin because it means a lot more dollars created and, you know, roughly the same amount of people. So, you know, pretty in simple terms, it means the dollar will devalue against Bitcoin in the future. And if you actually look at a a chart of like the dollar versus Bitcoin, it's this asymptotic line that goes from, you know, there were at one point um, uh, something like... uh, you know there were many, many bitcoins in a dollar, uh, right? At one point, and now it's like there's eleven thousand dollars in a bitcoin, right? So it's it's gone the other way over the last ten years, and because of that, because of this like scarcity piece, I think again governments and corporations will want some. So you're seeing you're you're finally seeing in America like corporations start to add Bitcoin to their balance sheet as like an asset.
0: Mm. And so is, I think is, you're,
1: you're going to see this happen more and more. And what's going to end up happening is that, um, again, people like based on their greed are going to want some. And that's just going to make the whole network more powerful as a freedom tool.
0: Yeah. And is, is the ultimate intention there that they're, they're then um, owning a currency which has a uh, level playing field that they, they don't have control I mean,
1: over? Was that Satoshi's intention in 2008? When he or she you know wrote the paper, I mean, who knows? I mean, it's yeah. not clear, and it's not yeah. Even like clear what that that, that, thats
0: the question—is like what what was the the ultimate vision? Or I mean, the ultimate have, vision was in-
1: buried in the yeah, that was buried in the genesis block in the first block of the Bitcoin blockchain. There's some text that was added that is the headline of a British newspaper that talks about the Chancellor being on the brink of another bailout for banks. So Bitcoin <laughs> is a political act. It is a criticism of the fact that. Um, you know, governments can rescue banks and they do rescue banks as opposed to rescuing the people. So like, yeah. I think where like maybe some Bitcoiners would actually agree with the MMT folks is that like the current system is like Van Prick, Basically, it's called the Cantillon effect, which was something that a economist from a couple hundred years ago came up with, which is that the closer you are to the money spigot, the more you benefit. So <laughs> these big banks, which are close to the money spigot, they're close to the people who make the money. They benefit first, and everybody else benefits later. And it's a very unfair system. Bitcoin, look, Bitcoin's not going to solve inequality. Anyone who says that is lying. Um, however, what Bitcoin does solve is sort of equality of opportunity, meaning that no matter whether you're a billionaire or the poorest person in your country, uh, you each, ha- neither of you can change the rules of Bitcoin, and neither of you can stop the other one from using it. So and it takes neither- personal
0: bias out of it, ultimately.
1: Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't care whether yeah. you're... I mean, honestly, it takes species bias out of it. I mean, it could, yeah. be, it could be, I mean, it could be a Z, or a, a smart refrigerator use. I mean, it doesn't, it has no idea who you are. So it takes any sort of bias out, out the window, mm. as long as it's a transaction that's valid, according to the rules of the system it's going through. So, um, you know, the point is again, that much like, again, just to, to sort of wrap this much like democracy, much like the internet, the open internet, Bitcoin is part of this like weird thing that humans have done where they've kind of unintentionally perhaps, but like as a collective traded off this centralized power structure for something that's like much more decentralized in a way that is self- interested narrowly, but altruistically creates like a better situation for everybody. So that's kind of the thesis I would say here. Um, And I think that just to tie up some of the threads on the stuff we talked about in terms of like personal stuff, I think that at the end of the day, you know, some of the things that I've gone through have uh, helped me understand. I just need to be a little more like uh, careful and and, and cautious and open-minded. So that's really why I ended up learning about Bitcoin in this way is I was open-minded. If I was not open-minded, I would have dismissed it. So, you know, being open-minded hopefully allows you to understand if somebody is going to be conflict-seeking or not, for example. Hopefully, it allows you to choose your words carefully. And it also allows you, in a more general sense, to, uh, you know, stop and think and look at something that seems a little strange and dive in. And in Bitcoin's case, that's that's what we call the rabbit hole. And you start to tug, <laughs> Is that the official to, term? <laughs> yeah, you start to tug on something and you, you go a little deeper. And then you go a little deeper. And then all of a sudden, you're like way down the rabbit hole. <laughs> and then you can join the rest of us crazies down here. But yeah, it's
0: the best place it's to It's really
1: exhilarating. I mean, it feels like it must have felt like in 1991 to be working on the internet. Like, it, it really is like that. I mean, there's this great show called... Um, which I highly recommend, called, uh, uh, what the heck is it called? Um, I'm blanking. Um,
0: Quick Google (laughs) search.
1: Yeah, Halton Catch Fire, sorry. One of my favorite all-time shows. Um, And it chronicles a small group of people in the early 80s, mid-80s, and early 90s who lived through the advent of the personal computer and the internet. And the zeitgeist of the time was like, Incredible to be at that forefront, right? And that's what's happening with Bitcoin. So, you know, I'm sure that like people would say, it'd be great to build a time machine and go back to myself in 1991 or whatever, if they're that old and be like, hey, you should really for your business or your family or for whatever, you should be paying attention to this internet thing. Cause like Bill Gates was going on TV at the time and he was being laughed off the stage by David Letterman and all these other people saying, ha ha ha, what a joke. Um, well, guess what? The joke was on them. So you <laughs> have that opportunity now with Bitcoin. So check it out, and you know you will be laughed at for sure by a lot of people. But you'll you'll be you know the one who's happy in the end. So mm.
0: and so, what's what's that, the best yeah. what's the best place for people to start? That um, Alex, like if if not if someone's never looked into it before, they're listening to this podcast. Uh, what would be the the best?
1: Yeah, it's tough to because Bitcoin is such a bizarre beast. I, I was part of a project last year where I teamed up with seven other people from around the world to write a very short explanation of Bitcoin called The Little Bitcoin Book. And that's probably what I would recommend simply because the reason we did the project and wrote the small book together was because we realized it was, there weren't very many good Bitcoin explainers. So check out The Little Bitcoin Book. We developed, we, we devoted a lot of time and effort to that. And it's It's a, you know, a short little punchy beginning to your journey. I mean, again, this is something that is going to be taught in universities as a four-year degree and that people will spend their entire life on is Bitcoin. Like it'll, Mm. it'll be something you get a PhD in. I mean, is that something that you're
0: championing um, at Singularity Alex, at the moment?
1: Well, at Singularity, I've been giving talks about the power of decentralization, the power of decentralized government, um, and, and yeah, the futures of money. And I've been talking to people about these different kinds of money that are going to be powerful, you know, important in the future. But yeah, I mean, Bitcoin's kind of my thing. It's what I, what I focus on the most. Mm-hmm. Um, so check out the little Bitcoin book. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Gladstein and um, look, I mean, I'll give a shout out. I mean, the person that helped me understand Bitcoin at the beginning there's a, there's a guy on the internet named Andreas Antonopoulos and he has a bunch of awesome talks. You should watch them all on YouTube um, about Bitcoin. And he's got a couple books that are like collections of his talks. I think they're called the internet of money. So check out him. He'll help you on your journey, but it's definitely a journey. It's, 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 <laughs> it's not like you can look at this thing carefully and start to understand it and then forget it. It's just going to stick in your craw, you know? so so
0: good I love luck your with passion that. I love your passion a lot alex. i, I, I want to thank you actually for for your work in human rights and moving the world and awakening the world to to different systems that allow for more freedom and some um, it's beautiful work
1: awesome well thank you i hope this was worth your time and i uh, hope to talk again soon
0: we have one last question alex always that we ask every listener which is um what does love mean to you doesn't necessarily be uh not necessarily romantic love but love in general as a state of being what does that mean to you
1: i think for me love is like comfort and and ease and just an escape a place where you can go and and not have to not have to worry i think that's what love is for me so i hope that works (laughs)
0: it all it all works appreciate it appreciate your time